1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be reading for our consideration tonight the first 11 verses, and uh, under the subject of the need for sound doctrine. Paul, well, I should not put it that way, God through the Holy Spirit addressed four letters to the church at Ephesus. One is the book of Ephesians. That is addressed to the saints at Ephesus. And I think you'll, you'll, you would see as we go through 1 Timothy, the tie-in of that letter uh, to the church, uh, to the book of 1 Timothy. But there are evidences in the books of 1 and 2 Timothy that yes, it's addressed to Timothy, but Paul meant it to be read to the church. And so it's not just private, Timothy, just read this, know this, don't let anybody else know what I'm telling you. It was meant for the church to hear. And there is a third, or a fourth, letter to the church at Ephesus. It's found in the book of Revelation. It's one of the seven letters. And that too has a tie-in, particularly to where we go tonight, as far as its history from the time... Paul wrote and Timothy served there to what it was by the time of John's writing the book of Revelation. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience And a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the portion of your word that was read and heard read tonight. Pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains that to us in further detail. The need for sound doctrine in the church. Help us to be always firm on the truth of your word and to be bold witnesses of it as we go from here that we would be able to Tell others the glory of our salvation in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So we want to look at three things, again, from this passage. First of all, the charge needed. Secondly, the charge described. And thirdly, the charge's aim. So the charge needed, the charge described, and the charge's aim. Paul tells him, I urged you, I urged you, stay in Ephesus. Paul is on his way to Macedonia. Paul is, is having, uh, the, the, he's looking back to a time when he and Timothy were together. And during that time, Paul is moving on to Macedonia. It would appear that Timothy desired to accompany him, else he wouldn't have had to have urged him. The urging is there because it would appear Timothy wants to go with Paul to Macedonia. But Paul is saying, no, Timothy, you need to go back to Ephesus. That is where you are needed. You are not needed most by me in Macedonia. The church at Ephesus needs you. That is where you need to go and serve. And Paul urges him. The, the word that's used there implies a, a strong plea, a, a passionate uh, request. It, it's not a, it, comes, it doesn't come as a command. Uh, as, as Paul and Timothy deal with this father-son spiritual relationship, uh, Paul doesn't need to go to the point of making it a command. The son, Timothy, understands Paul's urging. And so that first, okay, but Paul has a reason he wants Timothy back in Ephesus. And the reason why he needs to go back there is because there are certain people that need to be dealt with. Remain at Ephesus, why? What's the point? So that you may charge certain persons. Well, it's a unique expression, certain persons. Because there is a sense in which that's, that's a very definite term, isn't it? Certain persons. Not just some people. Not just maybe there's a few folks. Not, it's, it's not like these, these persons don't have identity. It's not like these persons aren't persons, real people. It's not like they're in some group or some, uh, some sort of thing where they've kind of lost themselves in the midst of the group and the group Okay, has become dominant. No, Paul knows who they are. They are certain persons. He is not naming them here because the certain persons are larger than what he wants to name here. If you go to the end of chapter 1, okay, he, he's, start with me at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Again, that's sort of a some. He knows who they are, but he's not naming them. But then he does. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander? Among whom? See, there are certain persons that Paul knows who they are in Ephesus, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
who are most likely the ringleaders. They are most likely the guys who, who are pushing this. There are others involved. Timothy has to go back to deal with the others. Why doesn't he have to deal with Hymenaeus and Alexander? Because Paul already dealt with them. Look at what the next phrase is. Whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. See, those two men, it would appear as you read this, Paul has already dealt with with church discipline. They're out of the way. But there are certain others still there. These two men were the leaders of the group. But there are others that are there. And they need to be charged. Notice he doesn't say, go back to Ephesus and hand those people over to Satan. Right? That, that isn't, it, it, this isn't the same as we're back in Leviticus. Cutting somebody off. Okay? From the group type of thing. This, this, he's telling Timothy, you need to deal with this, but you need to deal with the rest, these certain people, in a different way than I have dealt with Hymenaeus and Alexander. But they need to be dealt with. And I want you to go back, I'm urging you to go back to the church at Ephesus in order that you deal with these men. How is he to deal with them? Paul uses the phrase so that you may charge certain persons. Now, if, you're, if you've been a longtime member of the OPC, that is a powder keg word, right? The word charge, okay, elicits all sorts of things, okay? It, it elicits all sorts of, of drama in the sense of, well, that sounds like formal judiciary charges, that's what we do in the OPC. When, when somebody is out of line and they won't listen to reason, then formal judicial charges are leveled against those individuals. It might be doctrinal. It might be in regards to sin. Okay? Uh, if any of you have served, fortunately, not fortunately, God's blessing we have not had to deal with many of those kind of cases here at Little Farms over the years. But others have on a regular, ongoing basis. And, and they're wearisome tasks. Is that what Paul is saying? You go back there in Timothy and you start judicial procedures against these men. No, that's not what the word charge means here. The word charge here means to warn but to warn solemnly, to warn with weight. Not to be that parent who is saying 950 times in Myers, don't touch that box, don't touch that box, don't touch that box. And it's like, you might just want to take the kid out of Myers rather than saying 950 times, don't touch it, right? It's, it's, it's a warning, yes, okay, but we know it means nothing, Right? And it comes off as, you touch another box like that and you won't get any candy at the checkout. Right? And then you're behind them in the checkout. The kid's touched 10 other boxes since that time. And what does she do? She buys them candy. It's a warning without me. This is weighty. This is solemn. You go back, Timothy, and you issue a warning to these men. That, and the warning is basically, you need to cease and desist from the practice that you are engaged in. 
It comes with the idea of the issuing of a command to them. So it does come as authoritative. It's, It's coming with that weight. But it's not coming in the sense of some sort of judicial trial needs to be held for these men. Just go back and warn these guys. Warn them about what they are doing. Warn them about what is happening. Well, what is it they're doing? Right? All this buildup, Paul, what is it they're doing? Okay? That you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. These certain persons, among whom was Hymenaeus and Alexander, have been teaching something that is apart from true doctrine, that is apart from sound doctrine, because they're teaching something differently. Now maybe it's because they're captivated it because it's novel. It's always one of the problems in the Christian church. It's always one of the problems amongst the learned in the Christian church. It's always a problem amongst those who teach in the church. It's always a problem amongst those who are professors at Christian universities or seminaries. That they catch wind of something new. And it's like, ooh, I'm going to run with this. Why? Because it's new. I'll be able to sell books. I'll be able to become famous. And people will want me to come to speak at their their events. because, Because I got something new I'm going with. Yeah, but is it right? Is it sound? Is it true? Or is it just novel? Is it just a new approach? Is it just, well, it's just a new way of looking at things. Yeah, but is it right? Because what Paul goes on to say is, see, what happens is these people, okay, because they're not dealing with true doctrine, and he goes on to say, these guys are caught up in myths. These guys are caught up in endless genealogies. What does that do? All it does is take away the solid foundation of believers and leads to speculation. Well, if that isn't true, then what about the next chapter? Well, if that isn't true, oh, you got a new idea? Okay. I, I, I got a new idea about how to understand Genesis. Oh. So you don't think it's Literally true. Oh, no, no. Well, then what about the next chapter? What about the creation of man? Oh, no, no, no. Well, what about the next chapter, the fall into sin? Well, there certainly wasn't any snake. We had that guy this morning, right, in the old Dutch Reformed church that they dealt with this with. Right? See, it's this, it's this, it just leads to speculation. Hey, I've uncovered the biblical code of revelation. Let me write a book. And then maybe they'll make movies out of it. And I'll become a multimillionaire. Even though it's just based upon myth, speculation. What does that do to people's foundations about the truth of God's word? Oh, well, maybe that isn't true. Is there really a gospel of Timothy? What about those books we don't include in our Bible? See, 
what, what Paul is, is dealing with here is he's dealing with, with these certain individuals who have left true doctrine. They're no longer proclaiming true doctrine, the truth. They're into something different than what has been there, what has been taught by the apostles, what has been contained in the Old Testament scriptures. They're going off in another direction. It's got to do with myths, half-truths, half-baked ideas, fantastic thoughts. But what's happening is people are beginning to speculate about the truth of the whole. Well, did Christ then really die for me? And don't think that doesn't happen. Our, our novel ideas that oftentimes get published and written up have a great effect on taking the legs out from underneath. Because when you start promoting a different doctrine, people's faith is undercut. That's what Paul's dealing with. Not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We've been given a trust, Paul is saying. We've been given a gift from God. We've been given truth. And we have the responsibility of guarding that truth, of protecting that truth, of promoting that truth. It is not our responsibility to get people to erode trust in the truth that God has given to us. Timothy, you go back to Ephesus. And you deal with those certain individuals. You charge them. You warn them. Cease and desist. This needs to stop. This needs to be an end. So what is it, though, that these guys, I use some examples, but what is it that these guys are doing? What, what is it these certain folks there in Ephesus are off into the novelty of or something new? They've caught wind of something, and now they're running with it, and you know they're, they're, they're going to take over the church and run the church with this new philosophy, this new doctrine that they've, quote, invented. So secondly, the charge described. Verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The subject that these guys are going off on a tangent about is the law. Now Paul has dealt with people who are off on tangents with the law in other places. There are a group of people that, that he encounters who we call and refer to as the Judaizers. Paul deals with them in the book of Galatians. Paul deals with them in the book of Romans who are Judaizers. Judaizers are the people who would say, let's combine Christianity with Old Testament Judaism, 
And let's make it this way. Christ makes it possible for us to be saved by his death on the cross, but you need to finish it by your obedience to the law. That's a, that, that, in summary, is what a Judaizer is. So they take the law, and they put it on top of Christ, and make that the ultimate means of salvation. Christ only makes your salvation possible. It's your obedience that completes the deal. So it elevates the law to a place above the cross. Paul takes them to task. Shreds them in both of those books. That's not the Christian faith. It's not Christ plus law. It is Christ alone. The hallmark of the Reformation. But that's not these guys. So what are these guys doing? Well, look at what Paul does. Okay, Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Do you realize that, I I don't have to hopefully read the whole list again. Do you realize he covers all the Ten Commandments here? He covers the whole thing. What is Paul saying? What Paul is saying is that these guys have come up with the novel approach. Because you see, they're experts in the law. They know how the law works. They know how the law functions. Plus they have all this other information, myths and so on. Which may refer to Greek myths, Roman myths, Jewish myths. You don't need the law anymore. The law is unnecessary. Live how you want. Do what you want. Now that makes quite a bit of sense considering that Ephesus is the home of the goddess Diana. And and the worship involved in Diana is one of the most immoral worships that, that, that the Romans engaged in. What these guys are doing is not to try to say, you have to be obedient to the law for your salvation. These guys are saying, you have salvation, throw away the law. Live the way you want, do what you want. You want to go down to the local brothel there in Ephesus? Go! I've seen the local brothel in Ephesus. I've seen the ruins. I've seen the spot. I've seen the, the, the title. Whatever it says it make, you're a Christian. Use your freedom to do what you want. But Paul comes back and he says, no, you've got to use the law justly. You've got to use it rightly. The law is there, yes, to teach the unbeliever the truth. But the law is also the gospel. Notice that. In accordance with the gospel. Listen, he, said, he, he writes down all of this. Okay? All of those commandments. Dealing with sexual immorality, homosexuality, enslavers. Don't ever tell me that the Bible approves of slavery. 
Paul places it in a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Those who enslave others. Liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You see, it's not, the, it's not some doctrinal premise about God is not all wise. It's a life application that Paul says, that's doctrine. Doctrine is life. Doctrine is living. And that is in accordance with the gospel. It is not law against gospel. These are not two different things. Paul is saying gospel is law. How is that big true? Because the law points to our sin. We need the gospel. The law points us to the obedience of Christ. That is the gospel. The law points us to how we can best worship and glorify God. That is the gospel. Sin, salvation, and service to God. That is the message of the gospel. And these guys are tossing it off. They're not using the law lawfully. What has that caused? Verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, swerving from what? True doctrine. They've swerved. Right? I was just talking to one of you before church. You gave me the illustration. Right? All the deer. All the deer that we have to swerve and avoid these days. Right? Okay? It's like, you know, the drive from here home, okay, is four spots I have to watch for deer every single time. Right? I know they're coming. I know they're going to be there. I know they're going to be crossing the road, and I still end up having to swerve. But what happens when you hold the swerve? What happens when you don't correct? What happens when you turn, but you don't turn back? Paul says, they wander away from the faith. They've swerved. You, Timothy, go to them. Charge them, turn back. Because what they've done is they're off the side of the road in the ditch. And they're up against a tree. And they've shipwrecked their faith and the faith of others. What is the aim of doing this? Why do this? This does not sound like a fun task. (laughs) Uh, Paul, can't you come with me? Paul, why don't you come and do this? You you want me to do this? Why why would anyone want to take on this task? Timothy is not going to be popular. These teachers of the law are probably going to write up their own articles about him. Hey, Timothy thinks he knows everything and he's just this young buck preacher. He's just this young guy and now he's going to tell us guys who are teachers of the law what we are to do. This is not a fun task. Why would you do it? Paul answers that. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. What's love got to do with going to teachers of the law and saying, you guys need to quit this different doctrine that you're teaching? 
Because you guys are getting people off track and they're beginning to speculate about their faith. Somebody asked Jesus one day, what is the greatest commandment? I referenced this this morning as well. We all know the answer, right? The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's love got to do with it? Everything. But it's got to be motivated by love. Timothy, you go to them with a heart that's full of love. Love of God Love of the truth that God has given to you. Love of the gift that God has entrusted to you. Be a good steward of the sound doctrine that has been handed down to you. Be a good steward of the scriptures that are in your possession. Love God. Do it for the love of God. If you allow people to, take, to go a different direction, if you allow people to change the truths of God's word, that's not love of God. That's showing a careless or I don't care attitude. Do it for love of God. But here comes perhaps the harder part. Do it for the love of your neighbor. Timothy, I don't want you to go to these certain people because your heart is so angry and so bitter. You're so mad. You're inflamed with anger. Your ears light up every time you think about these guys. Your voice raises ten octaves just in discussing them. Timothy, you're not operating out of a principle of love. Timothy, the reason you need to go to those men and warn them is so that you don't have to do to them what I had to do to Hymenaeus and Alexander, which is to hand them over to Satan. Timothy, out of love for these men, warn them, charge them, do it solemnly, do it. You need to do this, Timothy. Out of your love for God and out of your love for your neighbor. Secondly, you need to do it out of a pure heart. See that? Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. Where does that love come from? From a pure heart. See, I've been in the church long enough, folks, not just little farms, but in the church of Jesus Christ long enough to know that oftentimes people have their own political agendas. And they'll issue charges left and right. But it's not because they love God and it's not because they love their neighbor. It's because they love themselves. And they want to make themselves known. They want to become some sort of notoriety. They want to build some sort of reputation. So they're out there leveling charges at people. Inciting people to anger and to respond. Only because their heart is not pure. See, and that is, that, that's one of the beautiful things about the OPC. The one, one of the things about this whole charging things when we do it judicially is that every individual who comes and levels a charge has to honestly answer the question, are you doing this out of pure motives? 
Or are you going after him because he married the love of your life out of high school and you're still mad at him? So I'm going to nail him. Found a little flaw in him and now I'm going to nail him. Found out he stole a candy bar when he was six years old. I'm going to level charges on him. Is that really from a pure heart? Is it really because you love them? You want the best for them? That your motivation is truly from a sense of purity? See, and if you want an example of what that looks like, read through the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus Christ. Because everything Jesus does is out of a pure heart. And that doesn't mean there aren't times when he's right in people's faces, overturning money changers in the temple. But he's not doing it for himself. He's not doing it for name recognition. He's not doing it to build the case. He's not doing it for some group. He's not doing it for some prestige. It's out of a pure heart. And if you can't do it out of a pure heart, then you're best off not doing it. The aim is love. That comes from a pure heart. Secondly, that comes from a good conscience. I say this with a lot of sadness. I knew a man years and years and years ago. Wasn't even in the state of Michigan. Wonderful preacher. Godly preacher. Spoke the truth. Spoke the truth. There's a man who is known for this is right and this is wrong. A couple of years later, it was discovered that that whole time he was actually beating his wife. Good conscience. Really? Really? Oh, not any one of us is perfect, but really? See, the goal is love. The aim is love that comes from a pure heart, pure motives, but also from a good conscience that you yourself have been before the throne of God, that you yourself have been to the holy mountain, that you yourself have faced the law, and that you yourself look at yourself and say, oh, what a sinner I am. I am the chief of sinners. That's the Apostle Paul. Or is it out of some sense of arrogance? I'm so good, I'm so righteous, I'm so holy, I'm so pure. I could never get this wrong. I must always have it right. Now a good conscience, which means a clean conscience, which means a clear conscience, which means any sin that you know you have has been brought before the throne of God and you've claimed that blood of Jesus Christ for its forgiveness. And that you're not going forward because you think you are better than these certain individuals. Fourth, and a sincere faith. Sincere here means tested. Sincere here means real. Sincere here means genuine, honest. See where Paul is driving with this? Timothy, The reason you and I need to deal with these certain individuals is because we're approaching this with love. And we're doing it with a pure heart 
And we need to deal with them out of our own clean conscience. Because we sincerely believe God's truth. Timothy, I urge you, go back. What happened? It's kind of interesting as far as what happens, and some of that will be revealed in weeks to come. But I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're now, I don't know, estimates are probably anywhere from 10 to 15 years down the road. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your work. Your toil. Your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. Does that sound like perhaps Timothy went ahead and cleaned house? Dealt with this? They have that reputation, this church does. They have the reputation of making sure things are on the right trail doctrinally. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You know what the Nicolaitans are? They're the people who say the law does not apply anymore and we can live immoral lives. There is a tie-in, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They cleaned house. But they've lost their motivation. They've lost their desire. They've lost their passion. They've lost their true love of God and of their neighbor. My friends, may it never be said of Little Farms that it's lost its first love. May we be those, as Paul says, to Timothy at the latter part of that chapter, you have waged the good fight. May Jesus Christ be praised. And God's people say, Amen. We turn-